Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 18, the book of Hosea, chapter 10, continued. You know, it's challenging, as is the book of Hosea, to decipher. There's several reasons I've already explained in depth. <clears throat> There's a overriding decision that teacher and student must make when we attempt to plummet depths. Is this to be taken only as a historical matter of interest? Something concerning an ancient people? Something that adds to our Bible knowledge? Or does it speak to every generation of those who claim Jehovah as their God, such that it can and ought to be applied to our current, modern lives. You know, there's just a short distance between allegory and application when it comes to teaching. Yet the distance between the two is distinct and it's important. Allegory means to take a story or a fable or an event and then use it to extract a meaning or symbol that's useful in communicating a related idea to another person. Application means to take what is inherent within the written or spoken word as an instruction concerning our proper thought and behavior. It's something that requires obedience, action, when a similar circumstance occurs. And while allegory has its place in Bible study and Bible exegesis, that place should be quite limited as the exception, not the rule. Unfortunately, the exception has become the rule over the last few centuries within institutional Christianity. Now application, on the other hand, probably ought to be the expected goal an outcome of Bible study. I mean, otherwise, such study results mostly in newfound head knowledge that essentially lays dormant, used only for theological discussions and debates. So, it's my estimation that Hosea's most useful purpose for believers is less as a historical record, more as a cautionary tale that is full of divine instruction and revelation that is meant to be learned, to be taken seriously, and followed by every generation of those who call the God of Israel our God. So today I intend to draw application into our study so that indeed the meaning of these scripture passages can be assimilated for our use not merely to fill up our reservoir of curiosity and, and knowledge. Now the first eight verses of Hosea chapter 10 go into some detail about God's determination to destroy Israel's fraudulent religious system and alongside of it their government, which has been since the time of Saul a monarchy. 
Yehovah, through the continuing agency of the Word, reminds Israel of their history, of what their kings have done. That it was never God's idea in the first place for Israel to have an earthly king. And it reveals what is about to happen to them as a nation, as a result of their determined wickedness, that they attempted to set before Jehovah as faithfulness. Now, back in chapter 8, God told them that they had given up true worship and understanding of Him, as found in His written word, as found in the Torah, and instead had adopted pleasing man-made rules and made them into doctrines. The point being that what they thought was sincere and proper behavior, morality, and worshiped was in fact wrong. And they were deceived. And even though Israel had not overtly decided to do what was evil in God's eyes, by ignoring His commands and replacing them with their own ideas of justice and mercy and obedience, they indeed had done evil, terrible evil. And it demanded a just response from Him. So here is the application. Believers in Jesus as the Son of God, our Lord and Master, unless you know the Torah and obey it, and you can't obey something you don't know, you have placed yourselves in the same untenable position before God, adopting the same deceived mindset as had Ephraim Israel. All of our sincerity and kindness and charity and justice and worship and our attempts to be at peace with everyone are not only useless to God, it's offensive to Him. If our standard for all of these virtues and activities is something other than His Holy Scriptures, beginning with the Torah. When in the fourth century, the Torah was officially removed from the Christian faith as our source of moral instruction and divine direction, it was as if the needle was removed from our moral compass. Now, according to the doctrines of the Church, everyone has their own individual north. What had been an objective set of divine ordinances and laws, complete with application, was legislated into oblivion by church leadership, and then it was replaced with a subjective set of human traditions established by the councils of men, that could and would morph with time and sufficient allegorical teaching into this, this, this endless array of possibilities and beliefs. It's my conviction that John the Revelator took his cue for describing the unfaithful of the end times as the whore of Babylon from the writings of Hosea and probably mostly from faithful Hosea's relationship with unfaithful Gomer, who had turned herself 
by her own will into an adulterating whore. This actual historical story of Gomer was then used to metaphorically characterize Ephraim Israel as an adulterating whore in the sense of unfaithfulness to God, which he calls idolatry. Now, sadly, much of Judeo Christianity has followed suit by doing exactly the same thing, creating a hybridized religion that mixes man made tradition with Bible truth, giving us a noxious brew of deception, and yet, with both ancient and modern religious institutions loudly proclaiming our innocence, our righteousness, based not upon God's timeless written standards, but rather upon our own newly fashioned, ever-evolving standards. Now, this deception is going to result in the gravest of consequences for countless individuals who are certain they are pleasing the Lord. But this certainly comes mostly from belonging to a group that agrees with them. Here's what God says to those of us who find ourselves in this kind of a predicament. From Revelation 18.1 After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority. The earth was lit up by his splendor. And he cried out in a strong voice, She has fallen! She has fallen, Babel the Great. She's become a home for demons, a prison for every unclean spirit, a prison for every unclean hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of God's fury caused by her whoring. Yes, the kings of the earth went whoring with her, and from her unrestrained love of luxury the world's businessmen have grown rich. Then I heard another voice out of heaven say, My people come out of her so that you will not share in her sin, so that you will not be infected by her plagues. Now, I want to tell you something. God doesn't so much see the world, pagans, non-believers, as the whores. Because, you know, the term biblically refers to someone who claims allegiance and exclusive faithfulness to a partner or to their sovereign, but instead behaves faithlessly or treacherously. When God pleads with His people to come out of her, He's pleading with those who follow Him and are obedient to Him in spirit and in written truth. He's calling on them, on us, to detach from, to leave those who sincerely claim to follow, but clearly are not faithful except in their own deluded minds. Open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 10. Hosea chapter 10. We're going to start reading at verse 9. Go on to the end. Hosea chapter 10, beginning at verse 9. Since the days of Gibeah you have sinned, Israel. There they took their stand, 
For these arrogant people at Gibeah, war was insufficient punishment. When I wish to, I'll discipline them, and the peoples will be gathered against them to discipline them for their two crimes. Ephraim is a well-taught cow. It loves to tread the grain. I've spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim in harness. Judah will have to plow. Jacob will harrow his own land. And if you sow righteousness for yourselves, you will reap according to grace. Break up unused ground for yourselves, because it's time to seek out an eye till he comes and rains down righteousness upon you. You have plowed wickedness, reaped iniquity, and eaten the fruit of lies. Because you trusted in your own way, in your large numbers of warriors, turmoil is going to erupt among your peoples. All of your fortresses will be destroyed. Just as Shalman destroyed Bet Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed to pieces right along with their children, thus will be done to you, Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. Now, the truth is, we can be easily confounded by some of these arcane words and expressions that are used. But in the end, the, the meaning is plain enough. When we rise upward and view what is being said from the 30,000 foot panorama, God is describing a historical cycle that we find constantly repeated with Israel. But the same pattern can also be seen throughout all humanity. We find the existence of this pattern because human beings inevitably make the same kinds of decisions throughout the ages, with the results being the same. Because God never changes, and therefore the axioms upon which the universe He created operates never change. Now, a secular book called The Fourth Turning explores this phenomenon. And in this book, the authors fashion a means to describe this predictable, this repetitive pattern by dividing these historical cycles into four quadrants. Now, I want to emphasize that this characterization is not God-given. It is only, it only establishes a good way to visualize these historical patterns as they emerge and as they revolve, and it by no means is this fictional. This is real. History has proved this model to be generally accurate, and the Bible proves it as well. Therefore, this is valuable for every Bible student to learn. This ageless historical cycle goes something like this. The first turning is a high. And this is an era when institutions of every type are strong and individualism is less desired. Society is confident about its direction, seeing it as good, even if perhaps those outside the majority don't like the sense of required social conformity that this direction mandates. America's most recent first turning began in 1946, following World War II. 
And it probably ended with the assassination of John Kennedy in 1963. Most people married early, sought stable corporate jobs, and then slipped quietly into the suburbs to pursue the newly defined American dream. It's an era in which social, government, and religious institutions are admired, and the appearance of social order and the demand for it, these, this is at its highest. But now we come to the second turning. The second turning is an awakening. This is an era when our institutions come under attack in the name of personal and spiritual freedom and individualism. Okay? That is, a desire for a libertine-based society emerges. Just when society is reaching its high tide of public progress and happiness, people suddenly tire of the expected social and moral discipline and want to recapture a sense of, of personal power and identity. Younger social activists and people of faith look back at the previous high era as an era of cultural poverty and of religious intolerance. America's most recent awakening happened beginning with the college campus and then the inner city revolts of the mid-1960s. <clears throat> Probably ended with the tax revolts of the 80s. This is the part of the historical cycle when the institutions of social order are still operating, but the demand for conformity to the current social order has greatly diminished. And in fact, many want this order to be overturned, to become something else. Now, then we go to the third turning. Now, the third turning is an unraveling. The mood of this era is in many ways the opposite of the high of the first turning. There is a sense of national, sense of national malaise, negativity, unhappiness. Social, government, and religious institutions are now weak. None of them are trusted. While individualism, while outright rebellion against our traditional morals and values, well, this is strong, very strong, and it's flourishing. Unravelings follow awakenings, and personal pleasure free from any social or religious fetters of the past, well, now that's the rule of the day. America's most recent unraveling began in the early 1980s, and we are probably now, in 2022, in the very advanced stages of it, perhaps even on the cusp of the very earliest stage of an impending fourth turning. Now, the current era opened with triumphant morning in America individualism and has drifted toward a nearly universal distrust of institutions and leaders, 
a very edgy, um, a radical, if you would, popular culture, and a competition among many new groups to define a new set of societal values. Faith institutions are not immune and have themselves had to reckon with this demand with the result that some capitulate. They comply, while others develop a fortress man mentality. Still others begin to seek an entire new identity that seeks to somehow balance popular trends with what they see as divine truth. Social order is almost dissolved because the demand for social order is low. Other than for our current era, a good example of an earlier unraveling was the Roaring Twenties, the Roaring Nineteen Twenties. Well, the fourth turning. Fourth turning is a crisis. This is an era in which a nation's institutional life is actually torn down, and then it's rebuilt from the ground up, always in response to a perceived threat to the nation's very survival. It's a time of volatility, it's a time of change, civic authorities, rather civic authority revives in a whole new form. Cultural expression finds more of a community purpose and people begin to identify themselves as members of a larger group that has embraced a common purpose that they share. In every instance, fourth turnings redefine national identity. A good example of a begun and completed fourth turning started with the stock market crash of 1929 and climaxed with America's entry into World War II. Okay, see, this is an era in which the availability of social order is low because our social institutions are so weak, even though the cry and demand for social order is rising. But the social and civic institutions are playing catch up. Highs always follow crises, real or contrived crises. And from this comes the new mindset among many that society and morality as we have known it must die. And it must be replaced with something else more appropriate for this new order. So there you have it. And while I've related this to you in secular terms, and as it especially concerns the USA, I suppose. These cycles, with but little modification, can be applied nearly globally and to almost any point in human history. With that in mind now, then Hosea 10, verse 9, is God explaining to Israel about an earlier turning of a high in their history that first morphed, of course, into a turning of awakening, but now has morphed into another turning of what always comes next, an unraveling. 
Another lesson we can learn is that sometimes the unraveling can be so complete and destructive that no fourth turning can follow. Nations, even empires, can disappear during an unraveling. Such was soon to happen to Ephraim Israel. There would be no return to a demand for social order, nor would their social and religious institutions be rebuilt and replaced. Instead, their exile would indeed dissolve Israel as a society and as a nation, and they will disappear from the world stage now after their unraveling for nearly 26 centuries. Now this is a warning for us. I hope what I'm witnessing is not just quiet, but a little bit disturbed. This is a warning. Things can and do happen in history in which there can be no recovery from an unraveling. I think it is quite right to mentally picture the end times apocalypse as just such a time when the historical cycle as we've known it throughout the ages comes to a conclusion. Instead, an entire new divine social order called the Kingdom of Heaven is established, governed by a perfect king. Yet, as we also sadly learn in the Bible, because humans are going to occupy it, and because the evil one still lives, in the end there's still going to be a rebellion to this divine order of a thousand-year-long high, after which God will annihilate the existing earth and heavens, recreate it, and establish an eternal order that will have no cycles at all. Verse 9 says, Since the days of Gibeah you have sinned, Israel. There they took their stand, for these arrogant people at Gibeah war was insufficient punishment. Now there's various nuanced ways to approach a more precise interpretation of this passage, which mostly revolves around the question of what event exactly does Gibeah represent to Hosea? What has he got in his mind about this? Now Rashi is insistent that this is referring to the atrocity that took place in Gibeah when a concubine was literally sexually assaulted to death. At this time, Gibeah was in the territory of Benjamin. And so it was a number of men of Benjamin who committed this terrible crime, yet they went unpunished. The other tribes of Israel were so incensed at this act that they band together and attacked Benjamin, nearly wiping them out as a tribe. So I think Rashi is correct in his assessment. The more important point, however, is that this event was seen by Jehovah as a moment in history that redefined Israel. It was a point of departure from something which they had once been. Thus, because of what they had now become, God is pronouncing, pronouncing a judgment of wrath upon them. And in verse 9, they are indicted, and in verse 10, the verdict is given. Verse 9 says that Israel should have learned from what happened, 
but instead it merely set them on a new course of wickedness. The war that nearly made Benjamin extinct should have caused all of Israel to examine themselves, to repent, to make substantive change. Apparently, not even that horrible war was enough to get their attention. So the reference to Gibeah created a paradigm, a defining pattern as to the depth of depravity to which God's people had sunk. Therefore, verse 10 says, When I wish to, I will discipline them, and the peoples will be gathered against them to discipline them for their two crimes. In a nutshell. God says that because of what He just said about them, who Israel had become, He's going to punish them by using pagan nations to administer His justice. Now, as a reminder, the use of the term peoples or nations in the Bible, always, unless the context makes it otherwise, is referring to Gentiles. Gentiles. And since the time of Abraham entering into covenant with God, nations in the Bible, by definition, mean Gentile nations. The term Gentile doesn't need to be added, because for God, at the moment of the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant, there is the nation of Israel, then there's everybody else. Now for me, this is further proof that Rashi is correct in thinking that the crime that happened in Gibeah was the gang rape and murder of the concubine, likely combined with the other tribes far overreaching and unjust determination to wipe out all of Benjamin for the crime of a few. Okay, but what's the second of the two crimes that this passage speaks about? To this there's very little consensus among Bible scholars. However, since the monarchy of Israel has been front and center for several verses now, the second crime might well be the inauguration of King Saul and his choice for a time of Gibeah as his capital city. The second sin being that it was at Gibeah where God was rejected as Israel's king, was Saul meant to replace him. And I'm going to say this another way. Until Gibeah, Jehovah saw Israel's character as defined by the Exodus and by their wilderness journey. That character has now been replaced with a spirit of wickedness. And Gibeah represents an entire new way of life that has begun, a historical, cyclical turning from their initial high into an era of awakening. And by the time Hosea recorded this message, the historical cycle had yet turned to an unraveling, and the punishment for it had already begun. Well, verse 11 <clears throat> begins with a very intriguing, picturesque use of an agricultural metaphor to make a point. 
The point is God's immense disappointment with Israel, whom he had so carefully and lovingly nurtured. Verse 11 is, Ephraim is a well-taught cow. It loves to tread the grain, and I have spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim in harness. Judah will have to plow. Jacob will harrow his own land. See, here's the essence of it. In its early days, as a set-apart people group, Israel is likened to a young cow. Israel was well-trained via their time in Egypt, their rescue from Egypt, the Torah that is given to them by God through Moses, then by the wilderness journey, and then Jehovah giving Israel the land of Canaan for their home. Israel, like a trained cow, at first loved to be obedient to their master, to God, to tread the grain, so to speak. This is something the cow, again, like the Israelite people, do willingly. God says that because Israel was so young, and because she worked at doing what she was trained up to do, He spared her the yoke. Now, to get a better understanding of what this is getting at, we need to understand that at first, young cows typically were not put to the yoke because a yoke was needed to do harder, heavier work. It was common that young cows might be used to simply walk over the stalks of grain spread out on the threshing floor in order to separate the heads from the stalks. In fact, these cows were even allowed the luxury of eating as they worked. Pretty cushy job. Later this would change, but not because the cow, Israel, had done anything wrong. The second stage of use on the threshing floor for a cow came later on in the training process, and only after they had physically matured. At that point, a yoke was put onto its neck, and then a heavy threshing sled was attached to the yoke. The cow could then pull the sled back and forth over the spread out stalks of grain, doing a far more thorough job of separating the heads from the stalks, and at a lot faster pace than only their hooves might accomplish it. The mention of the young cow's lovely neck, see, means she didn't yet bear the scars and calluses of carrying that heavy and uncomfortable wooden yoke upon it. The easier work for the younger Israel is a metaphor for the wilderness experience. But once matured, the harder work, symbolized by the addition of the yoke, would occur for Israel inside the Promised Land. There, inside the Promised Land, Israel would be expected to become a well-rooted and set-apart nation for God with all the responsibilities of being a light to the world. The more mature Israel, having now undergone years of training, would be expected to be much more ready to carry out all the terms of the covenant 
that had been given to them on Mount Sinai. So here, God has set out his plan for them. He reminds them in beautiful metaphor what he did for them and how he prepared them for the task. Well, this metaphor continues in the second part of verse 11. Notice we get a sequence of mention of Ephraim, then Judah, then Jacob. Ephraim is harnessed, Judah shall plow, Jacob shall harrow. Now the question among Bible academics is if the word Judah belongs in this sequence. The usual couplet that we find in Hosea is Ephraim with Israel, not Ephraim with Judah. So some Bible scholars think this ought to read something like I will harness Ephraim, Israel shall plow, Jacob harrow for himself. Now other scholars make the case that Judah does belong there because then you get the complete idea of Ephraim, northern kingdom, along with Judah, the southern kingdom, together forming Jacob, all of Israel, both kingdoms. Now, I don't know if there's any way to prove either case. <laughs> but my vote goes towards the word Judah belonging there because it better fits with the inclusion of the word Jacob, and that word's not questionable. Now back in the days of the wilderness journey, which is, now back to the metaphor, this is what the young cow represents. It included all the tribes of Israel. It was also all the tribes of Israel that were given land in the Promised Land. So it feels like God is sort of reminiscing. He was recalling the better times when Israel was accepting his training and operating as it should. And saying that Jacob would harrow for himself is to say that when Israel entered the Promised Land, the Canaanites, well, they had already planted orchards and vineyards and established fields, which Israel simply took from them. But now in the land, Israel, Jacob, would begin to do these tasks for themselves. This same agricultural metaphor continues on now in verse 12. If you sow righteousness for yourselves, you will reap according to grace. Break up unused ground for yourselves, because it's time to seek Adonai till he comes and rains down righteousness upon you. Now, this agricultural metaphor and its actual meaning here become combined. Just as with sowing seed for food, Israel is also to sow righteousness for themselves. And when this happens at harvest time, what comes up will be, metaphorically speaking, God's grace. That is, Israel is challenged by the Lord to not just know, but also to live according to the terms of the covenant of Moses. By doing this, they will find that just as by properly preparing the ground, and then by using good seed, it will produce a bountiful harvest, so by obeying God, righteousness, then every manner of goodness will come to them by means of God's grace towards them in return for their faithfulness. Well, let's nuance this just a little bit further. It's interesting. Two distinct Hebrew words are used here as the qualities needed 
for God to rain down righteousness upon all of Israel. They are Zedekah and Chesed. Zedekah and Chesed. Now, Zedekah is best interpreted as righteousness, but in the sense of righteous justice. So in modern English, the better choice probably would just be simply justice. Chesed is a concept that includes kindness and grace and mercy. Now, Sedek, which is what God's going to rain down on Israel, also means righteousness, but it means it more in the sense of a spiritual condition, a status before God of righteousness. So considering the context, I think a good reading of this is, if you sow justice for yourselves, you will reap according to mercy, then skipping to the end of the verse, till he comes and rains down his righteousness upon you. Well, verse 13 then goes on to explain that instead of Israel sowing justice and therefore reaping mercy, they acted wickedly. Verse 13, you have plowed wickedness, you've reaped iniquity, and eaten the fruit of lies. Why? Because you trusted in your own way, in your large numbers of warriors. Now, from the Hebrew standpoint, instead of sowing and then reaping Sedekah and Chesed, Israel sowed and reaped Reshah, wickedness, and Evel, injustice. This resulted in them eating the bad fruits of their improper sowing and reaping Kahash, Kahash, which is deception. That is, obedience has one result, disobedience has the opposite result. The former results in divine blessing, the latter result, results in the divine curse, just as the covenant of Moses outlines it. Now, probably this is referring to the time of King Menachem, son of Gadi, who led the people to ignore God's Torah and to instead follow their own ways. This reflects a reality set down in a proverb a couple hundred years earlier. Proverb 11.18 The prophets of the wicked are illusory, but those who sow righteousness gain a true reward. Okay. Talked about application. Here is the application that as believers we must understand, expect, and activate it in our lives. Personal prosperity is the logical result of good behavior as it's defined by God's Torah. Equally, national prosperity is the logical consequence of hard work and virtuous behaviors as a social order. But it must happen within the virtuous behavior as defined by God's Torah. Thus, both individual and national disaster, now we're talking about now this is the opposite, is the consequence of laziness and bad behavior. This too, under the definition of for wicked behavior in the Torah. Now, I use the term logical 
instead of spiritual. Because as I explained in an earlier lesson, human logic, no matter how much we might at times want to just kind of shove it down, tells us that if there is a law, there must be a lawgiver. And if there is a law and there is a lawgiver, then it must be objective. We know there is a law because all humans have an innate sense of the existence of something called moral and immoral, of the reality of something called right and wrong, good and evil. Logic further tells us that since foundationally we agree that this dichotomy exists, then we must ask where this innate sense come from, came from, where did it come from? And further, who decides the boundaries for right and wrong, moral and immoral? You know, <clears throat> I'm so disheartened to have recognized a few decades ago that institutional Christianity, as it's developed over the centuries, has discarded this line of logical, innate reason and opted for no law, no lawgiver, and made the definitions of moral, ethical, and right completely subjective and malleable, depending on, upon how one feels in our heart. This is precisely what we are witnessing in the book of Hosea as it concerns Ephraim, Israel. This is what they did, and this is what's happening to them as a result. Why are we so blinded to this? Or worse, honestly think, we're immune from it. In the book of Jeremiah, is something that we've all heard one time or another in our walk with Christ, but I think is mouthed and then is quickly forgotten. It's at the end of a few verse passage that I want to read it all to you so that the context is very clear. This message was aimed at Judah at the time it was being spoken by Jeremiah, with Ephraim and Israel already scattered, they're gone, in exile at this time. Starting at Jeremiah 17.1, Judah's sin is written with an iron pen, with a diamond point. It's engraved on the tablet of their hearts and on the horns of your altars. As they remember their children, so they remember their altars and their sacred poles by the green trees on the high hills. My mountain in the field, your wealth and all your treasures will be plundered because of the sin of your high places throughout your territory. You will relinquish, relinquish your hold on your heritage, which I gave you. I will make you serve your enemies in a land you do not know. For you have kindled my fiery anger and it will burn forever. Here is what Adonai says, a curse on the person who trusts in humans, who relies on merely human strength, whose heart turns away from Adonai. He will be like a tamarisk in the Arabah. When relief comes, it's unaffected, for it lives in the sun-baked sun and salty, uninhabited land. Blessed is the man who trusts in Adonai. Adonai will be his security. He will be like a tree planted near water. It spreads out its roots by the river, it does not notice when heat comes, and its foliage is luxuriant. It is not anxious in the year of drought, but keeps on yielding fruit. 
The heart is more deceitful than anything else, and it is mortally sick. Who can fathom it? The words and this belief that my heart tells me to do thus and so, and that this essentially reflects the proper life of a believer, needs to be discarded, never again considered as legitimate in our lives as believers. We are warned unequivocally that our hearts, meaning our minds, are deceitful, fatally sick. And yes, as the good prophet points out, it's a mystery as to why this is. But it is so. It is so. And we must never think that our salvation in Jesus or our trust in God will completely rid our minds of this terrible condition. And yet, because the church has discarded the one standard God has given to us to determine what is actually true and right, a concrete written standard by which we can know good from evil, moral from immoral, then Christians have been taught to rely on the very thing the Holy Scriptures tell us not to rely on, our mortally sick hearts, our minds that inevitably seek our own way. Again, this is what Ephraim Israel has done to itself. The thought of war, of military engagement, is inserted towards the end of verse 13. Israel's deceived way was to put their trust in the large number of soldiers that they apparently had. So ironically, since Israel put their trust in their military instead of in God, he would punish them militarily. Assyria would invade, kill, and exile them. Their military that they thought was so mighty was going to fall to a much mightier one. Here is another thing that although I've harped on it throughout our exploration of Hosea, I ask your indulgence that I can do it one more time. What is happening to Israel is no more nor less than exactly what the curse within the covenant of Moses for breaking God's commandments says would happen. Deuteronomy 28, verses 45 to 52. All these curses will come on you, pursuing you and overtaking you until you are destroyed because you did not pay attention to what Adonai your God said observing His commandments and regulations that He gave you. These curses will be on you and on your descendants as a sign and a wonder forever. Because you didn't serve Adonai your God with joy and gladness in your heart when you had such an abundance of everything, Adonai will send your enemy against you. And you will serve Him when you are hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and lacking everything. And He is going to put a yoke of iron on your neck until he destroys you. Yes, Adonai will bring against you a nation from far away. It's going to swoop down on you from the end of the earth like a vulture, a nation whose language you don't understand. 
a nation grim in appearance, whose people neither respect the old nor pity the young. They will devour the offspring of your livestock and the produce of your soil until you have been destroyed. They will leave you without grain and wine and olive oil, or your young cattle and sheep, till they've caused you to perish. They will besiege all of your towns until your high fortified walls in which you trusted collapse everywhere in your land, which Adonai your God gave to you. Now the application is this, for those who claim trust in the God of Israel, but who behave according to our own ways and trust in the might of our armed forces and our intelligence, a military disaster is what's going to bring us low. I'm going to close with this thought. Believers, although the vast majority of us have been taught the fairy tale, that we have been joined to a covenant with Jesus, a new covenant separate from all other covenants that abolishes all the earlier covenants. This is a fairy tale. The reality is that by means of Jesus and His sacrifice of courage and love on that cross, we who were once strangers to the covenant have been joined to the same covenant that God made with the Hebrews. It's just accomplished in a new way. And since that is the case, we of course are subject to the same laws and commands, to the same blessings and curses, as was and still is Israel. The curse we have been saved from is eternal death. But most certainly not the curses in the sense of punishments and discipline for our wrongful behavior as defined by the Torah. Okay, next time we'll finish up chapter 10 and move on into chapter 11.